Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. Most people know you probably need a release signed by anybody you interview or anybody you film for your project. But there's so much more to it than that. And and having the legal ducks in a row is really not that hard as long as you have the materials and, and the awareness that it needs to be done. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 39. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, the Documentary Life podcast, and the Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com academy. It's been two weeks now since Steph and I attended Podcast Movement 2017 in Anaheim, California. And yet somehow it already feels like it's been ages ago. It's probably due to the fact that we've just come off of a of a three day weekend here in the in the U.S. Um, the kids they've only recently started daycare. In fact, this week it's only the second week that we've even been in our new house. Our new house, that's, by the way, barely has any furniture in, in it yet. <laughs> so yeah, a, a lot has been happening in a very a very short um, a very short time span. So you know the luster and glow of our time in California at the podcast industry conference it's it's long since worn off. But what hasn't worn off is is the excitement and, and, and inspiration and, and desire that I have for for producing this show weekly. What I learned from my time at Podcast Movement, it stayed with me in large part due to the feelings that I have about my time there and and the many you know really fantastic and, and like minded people that I met in the various um, breakout sessions, the workshops, and and keynote speeches. I, I also talked a bit about this in the opening of last week's episode, you know, the, the importance of, of being around like-minded people who, who share your own passions, um, have a deeper understanding of your own, you know, your shared interests, that, and, and quite frankly, speak the same language as you. I drew uh, parallels between what I felt being around the podcasting community and what you and I feel very much here on the show as, as documentary brothers and sisters or, you know, doc lifers, as I like to refer to us. So when we come back from a quick break, I'd like to delve into this a little bit further. I'd like to talk with you about the importance of attending documentary live events, i.e., you know, workshops, screenings, uh, conferences, and, and film festivals, and how you might best get involved with some of these. Again, I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and as always, thanks for tuning into The Documentary Life. I'm going to ask of you something that I don't think I've asked of you for for well over a year. I need a favor. I need you to go to iTunes right now and give this show a five-star rating and maybe even write a few words for a review. When I first started doing the podcast, I was asking you this on a regular basis. You might remember it was like the first three or four episodes. It's it's clearly been a while since then. So I'm asking you now because I'd like to see this podcast get out to more people. That can happen if the documentary life comes up in more iTunes searches. In order for this to occur, iTunes basically needs to see more activity in what's known as its ratings and reviews section. 
the more ratings and reviews the show gets, the more it'll come up in, in searches. So, you know, for when people are searching for documentary film podcasts, we are, we're far more likely to come up in their searches if iTunes is, is seeing more of this activity. You know this show is a passion of mine, so please help me keep growing this documentary community of ours. If the documentary life has benefited you in any way, please take a moment right now, head to iTunes, uh, search for the Documentary Life podcast, look for the ratings and reviews tab, and then leave us a five-star rating and review. I can promise you that every single one of these ratings and reviews gives it a little bump in the iTunes popularity rating, thereby, again, increasing the visibility of the show. If you do have any trouble finding the ratings and reviews area, I've added a direct link to it in the show notes for this episode. In advance, thank you for helping me to continue spreading the documentary life love. So why would one attend a live event that has something to do with documentary film or, or documentary filmmaking? That may seem like a ridiculous question, but let's think about it for a second. When was the last time that you went to a documentary film festival or a documentary filmmaking workshop? Do you attend any this year? If so, good for you. You're already ahead of the game. But for the majority of us stock lifers, attending a live event isn't always the obvious thing to do. Why is that? Probably because we're too damn busy making our own documentary films. Why? Makes sense, right? I've often talked about how, you know, if we're not careful, living the doc life can be a pretty solitary one. The nature of documentary often lends itself to this. Um, in essence, you as the filmmaker, you get an idea. You, you start to research this idea. You research the subject. Uh, maybe you talk to a few people. You grab some gear and, and, and you're off. And, and next thing you know, you're conducting interviews. You're manning the camera, you know, putting up a light or two, running sound yourself. You know the score. It's all familiar, right? All, it's all too familiar. You're doing the whole thing yourself. Any of you who works in, in commercials or TV or features uh, knows that, that it's a bit different from that. It's not a solitary situation. You know, if for no other reason, then you have to put yourself out there so that, you know, people know who you are. They remember you. You know, you stay connected so, so that you can really, you know, you get the next gig. You get the next job. It's, it's the nature of the business, so to speak. Not to mention on commercials and features, you know, you have obviously bigger budgets, you know, bigger than we doc filmmakers tend to work with. So that means you you, you can afford to hire out crew members. Um, you know, working with crew is not a solitary thing. It quickly becomes a pretty social event in some ways. I believe that by extension, by being a documentary filmmaker, sometimes sometimes we have a tendency to forego the various, you know, documentary events, if you will, that are out there for us to get involved with. You know, we stay to ourselves and to our films. I have met many a doc filmmaker, you know, who may have had a little more than a slight social anxiety issue, believe me, myself included. It's it's my wife who's constantly pushing me to get out there and meet people, um, go to some of these events, hell, to even have people over to our house for dinner, if I'm being honest. So again, why is it that we should be attending live events? Well, think about what I've mentioned in the last two openings of, of our podcasts. I've talked about how inspired and excited I was after attending Podcast Movement, you know, after being around these other like-minded individuals who, you know, we all share the same similar passion. Well, I mean, in fact, our doc industry guest that we'll have on the show later today, I actually met him at the conference. He, he's an entertainment lawyer who, who specializes in media. He deals in legal issues with documentary filmmakers all the time. I, but I just happened to have met him at one of the breakout sessions at Podcast Movement. You know, coincidence that I would meet someone whom, whom could be a guest on this show about documentary filmmaking. 
Mm, sure, maybe, but but even if I hadn't met someone, you know, who'd be great for the show, I was meeting all kinds of people all of the time, um, you know, uh, every other minute who, who have already helped me with my podcast career, if you will. Think of it this way. Think about the last time you were at, you know, any kind of a social event, say, um, a night out with friends at the pub, uh, a family reunion, or, or a dinner gathering at someone's house, and, and and someone asks you about you and maybe what you do, and, and and maybe one of the things that you mention is that you're making a documentary film or you're a documentary filmmaker, and suddenly you see this person's face light up, right? You, you know the look. It's it's one of recognition, familiarity. It's it's even relief, <laughs> and, and and they quickly blurt out, "Hey, you know, I'm a documentary filmmaker too." And the next thing you know, the rest of the time at this at this social gathering, it's spent engaging with this other person. I'm sure it's happened to you. It's happened to all of us at some point. Um, it, no, it doesn't happen all the time. Certainly, it's you know I don't know far easier easier to, to meet someone to you know and have a conversation about politics or sports. It's it's probably more uncommon to meet a doc filmmaker at at, at some random social gathering, but it does happen. What's important to remember here is the feeling that you had upon meeting that person. You know what emotions did this bring up? I'll bet it felt pretty good, and, and, and I'll bet it probably got you fired up to be working on your own film. Now, many of you are probably thinking, well, you know, hey, I'm a part of some cool documentary communities on, on Facebook. Uh, I tweet pretty regularly regularly with some, some doc filmmakers. Heck, I listen to the Documentary Life podcast. You know, doesn't the use of, of, of social media and, and engaging with online communities like this, doesn't account for something? And, and I would say, yes, definitely, of course it does. To a degree, it's important and helpful to be, you know, sharing ideas and networking with people in, in, in any way that we can. I, I would agree with that. I could pretty easily do a segment on social media in the documentary community, but I still think that there's immense value in meeting people, you know, one-on-one -on -one or face-to-face. -face. Attending live events to see how people make films um, hear how people live their documentary lives, feel the overall energy of others who are, who are doing what you're doing, right? Think of it kind of like, um, like <laughs> think of it kind of like online dating. There's only so far, you know, that an online profile and email correspondence is going to get you. At some point, and hopefully sooner than later, you're going to have to meet this other person in order to see if you're you're going to get on, right? By attending live events, you're allowing yourself an opportunity to meet your um, maybe your next investor, uh, a potential future mentor, uh, that person who can help you with, you know, that animation sequence you've been wanting to put into your film, um, or that grant writing advisor who can share some insight into the grant writing process. I could go on and on. You never know who you're going to meet in everyday life. Like it does happen that you can meet another doc filmmaker at a party, right? But imagine the increase in odds. If you go to a place where there's a room full of them. Now, there are many ways in which one can attend um, this idea of a live documentary event. Going to a documentary film festival, that seems like the obvious one, right? That being said, you know, please don't automatically assume that means you need to book your next airplane tickets for, for Salt Lake City or, or Cannes. I'm not sure I'd even recommend going to Sundance or Cannes, to be honest, you know, unless you're looking for... I don't know, people watching, a nice spectacle to observe. Yeah, of course, you are likely to meet other filmmakers there. 
Um, and that's good, just as long as you're not, you know, hoping to hang out with Morgan Spurlock or or Errol Morris or, you know, get your big break by meeting up with, with somebody there that has a name or, or a distrib- distributor or something. You might get to talk with Morgan Spurlock a bit. I, uh, in fact, I met him briefly back before uh, Super Size Me was in the theaters, and, and he was a really sweet guy. He was super accessible. But it's important to remember that these people—they're there to to exhibit and, and show their films, right? Maybe meet with with a distributor or t- or three. <laughs> uh, they're not there to necessarily meet you and talk about your really great documentary film idea, right? I've found much better success meeting like-minded people with similar interests and needs by going to the smaller, the smaller venues, the smaller festivals. Surely there are documentary film festivals, you know, within a hundred miles from where you live at this point. It's an easy Google search away. Um, we had on Film Fest director Lyndon Stone and and film doc film directors Richard Wiley and Costa Boats uh, 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 way back. Hey Costa, if you're still listening to TDL, how are you, mate? Uh, we had them on back in July. Lyndon runs runs the MDFF, the the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Richard and Costa both had films at MDFF, and, and in Costa's case, he attended the festival um, as well as he he gave a documentary filmmaking masterclass. Um, and from everything that I've heard, this festival was a very accessible one for filmmakers like you and I. You could have walked up to any one of these guys, from from what I understand, and, and introduced yourself, and maybe asked for a little guidance with your or with your own project. Um, more than that, you would have had an opportunity to meet other doc filmmakers who were also in attendance. Um, you would have been able to to share ideas, uh, challenges, recommendations, basically anything documentary related. And, and you would have had dozens, I don't know, maybe hundreds of people who, who would have not only lent a sympathetic ear, um, but might have been, you know, very likely been able to point you in the direction of someone who might be able to assist you with um, some element of your film. Workshops are another great way to meet other doc filmmakers, um, as well as expand upon um, your documentary filmmaking knowledge and skill set. It's amazing what sitting in on even a half-day workshop on, say, fundraising for your film, what it can do. All of those fundraising books that you've read and websites you, you've scoured, you know, hours and hours and weeks and weeks of research on the best way in, in which to write your grant or, or throw a fundraising party, right? And then suddenly after <laughs> four hours in this half-day workshop, you realize that, you know, all of this information that you've gained amounts to more than the last year you've spent researching on your own, Um this is usually because of the the class participation that's encouraged in these types of settings. You know, very personal stories are shared. You know, voices get to be heard, right? All of them um, directly related to, in this case, in this example, I'm using, you know, say fundraising for documentary films. At, uh, at, at, at Podcast Movement, I went to an hour and a half, what they called a master class, and it was really back-to-back sessions. Um, it really just ended up being about hearing about everyone's podcast and, and then openly discussing what might help each, each person's podcast out. Uh, effectively, there were about, you know, think about 10 people, um, you know, in this, in this circle and uh, that were participating in this session, right? Super intimate. And each of us was given 10 minutes to talk about our podcast and then really what our greatest need or needs were for the podcast. You know, as we went around the room and everyone's introducing their podcasts and explaining what their needs are, then everybody has has time to give feedback to it, you know, within that that 10-minute segment that each of us is allotted. Let me tell you, it was practically like this podcasting therapy session for each of us. 
I learned more in that, you know, that open and, and honest session than I did for some of the more, you know, I guess intensive 50 minute sessions that were actually talks, you know, led by other podcasting expert experts. Imagine just sitting in a room for for a mere hour and a half, right, with with 10 other documentary filmmakers. Each of you gets 10 minutes to to talk about your film, um, introduce it, and then tell us about your greatest concerns, you know, or needs with the project. Then you get to receive feedback from nine other people. I bet that it would be the most intensive 10 minutes you'd probably ever spent discussing your film. Think of how uplifting and useful, you know, that hour and a half would be for for all of the filmmakers. You you know, you'd be listening to other doc filmmakers talk about their films and their own challenges with it. And you'd probably be sitting sitting there, you know, writing down half of the things that were said because you too, you too would also be able to, you know, put to use many of these suggestions and recommendations. I'm telling you, documentary film therapy, people. Maybe I should put something together for a handful of us, actually. <laughs> and that's what we'll call it. We'll call it Doc Lifer Therapy or something. That's actually not a bad idea at all. I could, um, I don't know, I, I guess I, I could open up a session on that uh, that Zoom platform. Um, do you guys know about Zoom? It's it's actually pretty awesome. It, it's uh, I've only been experimenting with it you know, lately uh, as recommend, recommended by a few friends. It's, it's basically this live uh, video conference application. It's great, though. I, I realize you can do this with, with, with other similar um, uh, websites and platforms like, like Facebook or Skype, but, but I really like what Zoom has to offer. Unlike you know, those other platforms, video conferencing is, is Zoom's sole purpose. Anyhow, I mean, should we do this? You, you know what? You want to take an hour and a half sometime and, and meet a handful of other doc lifers? I could sort of, uh, you know, lead the thing, MC the thing, if you will. And, and, and we, I guess we, we'd go around the room, right, and, and meet everyone and talk about our films and then maybe what our greatest need or needs are for it. Um, I mean, I, I could probably get something like this up and running in the next month. Yes? I mean, would you be into that? Um, let me know. Uh, let me look into this a little bit and, and I'll get back with you. In fact, uh, tell you what, probably the first people that I would let know of, of available spots for something like this, this this little documentary support group, if you will, um, will be those of you who are already on the Doc Lifer weekly newsletter. If you're not already, you know, a part of this this email group, um, you can always go to the Documentary Life website and, and sign up for the weekly email there. Uh, yeah, cool. That that would be awesome. I'd actually been thinking about doing something video conferency with you guys for a little while now, and and now as I'm sort of fleshing this out with you, um, this seems like a perfect application for it. It's it sounds like it would be great. Another great event you can attend as a documentary filmmaker um, is a retreat that's specifically tailored for documentary filmmakers. Um, these are usual, usually long weekend, you know, sort of getaways in the, in a scenic place where you basically live and breathe nothing but you know the fresh air and and documentary filmmaking. Uh, I know that Oregon um, has a pretty nice one called uh, Oregon Doc Camp. Um, uh, this past year, it took place in. I've never actually attended it myself, but I have long wanted to. Um, but I've heard great, great things about it. This past year, it, it took place in, I think it was late May for three or four days in um, you know this beautiful rustic setting of of Silver Falls, Oregon. I think that only about 40, 45 or so doc filmmakers um, can attend at any given time. Uh, you, you do have to apply to get into it, and, and there is a price, of course, and then that, that basically includes um, uh, food, lodging, and all of the workshops. 
and those workshops are generally led by you know some higher profile but but very accessible uh, doc filmmakers. And, and, and many of these types of settings, you're strongly encouraged to bring your own documentary film, maybe a rough or, or fine cut of it, with you um, when you go to the retreat. That's that's actually part of the deal. You're all sharing your films and attending the workshops together. Um, I think in the case of Oregon Doc Camp, there are um, moderated panel discussions you know, with the invited guest speakers. There's some smaller scale roundtable sessions, maybe not unlike the, um, the master class that, that I referred to earlier at Podcast Movement. Um, informal work in progress screenings, right? Uh, pitch sessions with the presenters and, and really um, uh, an array of, of technical demonstrations by, by some various camera and, and film TV production uh, sponsors of, of, of the retreat. Um, I know that uh, that uh, TFI Tribeca Film Institute puts one on with the with the Camden International Film Festival as well. I, I don't know much about this one. I know a bit less, um, but I've also heard some pretty good things. Uh, what I do know is uh, um, there are five, I think, five U.S.-based documentary filmmaking teams that attend a five-day retreat in uh, Camden or Rockport, Maine. Um, there, there's a series of, of mentoring sessions and workshops and, and, and other like classes uh, led by established industry people. Um, I, I don't know. Have, have any of you attended any of these sorts of things? I'd love to hear more about it. That would be actually super, super helpful to hear more about that. In fact, maybe I should have someone from from the Camden TFI retreat or Oregon Doc Camp, you know, come on the show and, and talk about these retreats. Probably not a bad idea, actually. I'd also dig hearing more about retreats that are happening overseas, no, certainly not just U.S.-based, um, some international documentary filmmaking retreats, if you will. I've been dreaming about you know putting together something like that you know for a long time. I mean, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be pretty cool to meet up in in Nepal or or Bali or Amsterdam or or uh, New Zealand? See, I got New Zealand in there, Costa somewhere <laughs> somewhere, and just and just have a week of, of mentoring and workshops and film sharing and, and doc life sharing. Um, hey, you never know, people. These things are all possible, right? These things are all possible. Man, just talking about all this meeting up and sharing with other doc filmmakers, it, it just gets me all inspired to get out there and, and, and be meeting and talking and, and networking with some of you guys. Got to find a way to make that happen. Got to find a way. Anyhow, I hope that this helped give you some idea of the live event possibilities that are out there for us doc filmmakers and really why they're a great thing for us to be doing, hopefully even on a consistent basis. It's now time for the Doc Lifer community question of the week. This week's email is from Michael. He says, Hi Chris, I'm working on a documentary called For Your Grandchildren, which is partially about Standing Rock and the Sabal Trail Pipeline fight. I hope I, hope I pronounced Sabal correctly. I find myself in the Houston area filming. There are a lot of pieces to the story I'm trying to tell. I have hit a crossroads of the film and really could use some guidance. You can see the trailer here, and, and Michael provides a YouTube, uh, YouTube link, which of course I watched. He continues, I was actually arrested during the process of filming. I have found myself immersed in a world of people who are fighting to protect the planet. Thank you for constantly inspiring me with the podcast. I have listened to most episodes, and it's part of what keeps me going with the project. Uh, Michael, thank you for your email, man, and thank you for sharing a little bit of your, of your own documentary story. I did, of course, watch the trailer for um, for for your grandchildren. 
some very alarming images there, of course. Um, though sadly, these, were, these weren't exactly unfamiliar images to anyone who had followed um, the events in North Dakota, the North Dakota Access Pipeline situation last year. Um, you might remember that we'd had on filmmakers Lindsey Grazel and, and, and Dea Schlossberg uh, on the show a while back discussing their arrests during the time of filming. Um, it sounds like you may have run into some trouble yourself. So uh, first of all, man, thank you for fighting the good fight. Um, it sounds like you got involved in a project that's taken you to places you never imagined. And you've probably found yourself swept up in a story and, and, and a cause um, that maybe previously to this you'd had no connection to. Good for you and, and really good for all of us. So is the way of our documentary lives, right? Now, you mentioned, um, you mentioned that you've hit a crossroads of sorts and, and that maybe you're looking for some guidance. I, I, honestly, I'm not sh entirely sure what you're looking for. Uh, um, I couldn't help but wonder even if perhaps part of your email didn't get sent. It looked like it may have been truncated. Not sure, but just throw that out there. Um, but if you have something specific that you were hoping for, specific that you wanted to ask me or could use some help with, please you know, do email me again. Either way, I'll try and point you in the right direction, or I can mention it here on an upcoming podcast. Also, you, you mentioned Houston. Of course, anyone in the U.S. is well aware of, of the travesty that's taken place down in that part of Texas. The hurricane was absolutely devastating. It's still devastating. Um, I mentioned it in last week's Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week. Um, you might remember a fellow Doc Lifer was reaching out to anyone who might be filming in the Houston area. He was looking to, to possibly add a, a video component to his thesis work. In any case, did you mention this in your email because you wanted me, you know, to be put in contact with him? If so, please do let me know. And and that also goes for any doc lifers out there who might be planning on, on on doing some shooting down there, you know, in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. Again, thank you for your email, Michael. If you do get a moment, please, you know, drop me a follow-up email with some details about how I might better help you. If you yourself have a comment, question, or suggestion for the show, you can email me at chris at barongfilms.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at B-A-R-A-N-G films.com. And, and you too could be you know highlighted on the next Doc Life or Community Question of the Week. When we come back from a short break, we'll be talking with entertainment lawyer Gordon Firemark about all things legal that a documentary filmmaker should be aware of when making his or her film. After I premiered my first documentary film, Journey to Kathmandu, a film that took nearly five years to make, I remember feeling elated and exhausted. Is there any other feeling like the first time you show your completed doc film to an audience? I don't think there is. Not long after, I took a well-deserved short break away from the city, and it was while I was on a hike, when I had reached a mountaintop and was overlooking the Great Columbia River, that I found myself thinking back on the film and the journey that I'd been on. I thought about all the mistakes I'd made, all the wins that I'd had, how it had felt to finally share my film with an audience, and I thought about the life it would have from here on out. And I began to break down all the components of what had gotten me to where I was at that moment, and all the things I wished I'd done differently. And this is how I began to form what I am sharing with you today, a free course entitled The Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist. In The Essential Checklist, I share with you the fundamental aspects of making a documentary film, and perhaps most importantly, help you to avoid making some of the mistakes that I made during my first feature film. It is my sincere hope that The Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist will help make your doc film's journey the truly exhilarating experience that it can and should be. It's yours simply by going to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses and enrolling for free.
Mr. Gordon Firemark, how are you, sir? I'm excellent. How about yourself? Hey, I'm doing very well. Welcome to the documentary life. It's been, what, now a couple of weeks since we bumped into one another? Yeah. I, th- I think that might be a good way to start here is just to explain how that happened because it, it's it's actually really cool and crazy how that happened. Uh, and I mentioned, I talked about this on, on last week's episode, both Steph and I attending podcast movement and, and, and running into you, Gordon, at the uh, at podcast movement. It was in one of the breakout sessions, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, I think. Was it the one I was running, the Q&A? It it was at, yeah, it might have been at the mastermind, which would make sense because I think it was one of the uh, the back to back sessions. And uh, and for our listeners, Gordon and I did not know one another prior to this, though I knew of Gordon. And it wasn't until I saw Gordon's name tag and he introduced himself during the session that I thought, I know that name, I know that name, Gordon Firemark. And and, and sure enough, we were in the session and I quickly kind of Googled Gordon and uh, I thought, sure enough, we have a mutual friend in in Faith Fuller of Desktop Documentaries. I'm relieved it wasn't because you saw my picture on the post office yeah. wall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe I didn't know about that. No, I'm <laughs> how, how did you find podcast movement? How, how was that for you? It was great. You know, this year was each year it gets better and better. This was the third year I'd been there. I missed the first one because I had uh, opted for New Media Expo that year. You did okay. Just didn't have it in the budget to do both. But uh, yeah, this this is the third year for me, and I was. Uh, you know, I always try to to speak at these things when I can. I have, um, I have something to say about the legal aspects of of podcasting, and so that was my reason for being, right. not my reason for being there. It was it was my justification for, for being there. Totally, totally. And and you uh, said it's I, the third I, year you've been there. Yeah, yeah. And you know the the panels and the and the and the uh, breakout sessions and things are all fantastic. But really, the value of these things is just going and meeting people and and. The I won't call it purely social because there's right. an agenda behind it, but it is, it is so rewarding to meet like-minded people and have you know a chance to you know sort of talk the business of the thing yeah. in this case podcasting. Yeah, great. then then that's such a such a apt way to put that. We I actually talked about that in my opening segment last week in last week's episode. Uh, I, I I sort of I spoke about this idea of what it was like to be around a group of like-minded people who were mm-hmm. passionate in doing the thing I do, which is, you know, in part is, is podcasting. And I really yeah. equated it to my audience of documentary filmmakers and, and the networking that we do here and being around the documentary brothers and sisters. And, and are and, there similar yeah. conferences like that for the documentary community? Uh, yes and no. I think Gordon more, more of what it is, is, is the film, the documentary film festivals where people will network yeah. and meet one another. It, it's more of that though. I myself, I'm hopeful to change that a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm in the midst of putting together some workshops and courses, um, uh, certainly spurred on by the yeah. um, the inspiration of a couple of weeks ago. And so I'm hopeful to, to be doing that as well. I, I think that same model would lend itself very well to, in particular, the documentary film community, but any film community really yeah. could benefit. And um, I'm here if you need some help. So, oh, know. excellent! I, I appreciate that. And and along those lines, Gordon, I know of you as an entertainment lawyer, and yeah. of course, you were at the conference. Uh, you were at Podcast Movement, mm-hmm. um, essentially uh, as as a podcast lawyer, if you will. Would you consider yourself an entertainment lawyer still, or 
Tell me about well, that. I, I consider myself a media and entertainment lawyer. Thank you. And podcasting is a medium just like film is a medium. And right. you know, the only medium I don't really get involved in very much is music, mm-hmm. the recorded music industry, because I, you know, I did it early in my career and it, it's, it's a very, what's the word? Very intense. Yeah, <laughs> right. And, and, you know, film has really always been sort of a, a love of mine oh. and uh, both feature and documentary style. Mm-hmm. I, I myself uh, have an undergrad degree in film production and okay. uh, uh, that's sort of how I got interested in that. But, but the legal stuff has always sort of captured my spirit as well. So uh, this is my way of combining those things. But when I became a podcaster, I went looking and realized, hey, you know, there's nobody out there who has put together the information about the legal aspects of podcasting. Totally. Uh, so I wrote a book and, um, and have, you know, been making the rounds talking about that stuff uh, ever since. And, um, so it's a little subset of my practice. Most podcasters don't have a lot of uh, financial resources. So right, right. I, I don't make a living being a podcast lawyer, but when there's a conference and something, that's what I go and talk about. I want to help these folks stay out of trouble and protect themselves from other people. Uh, stealing stuff and using things without permission. Gordon, you spoke of of an interest in film, and in fact, your undergrad was in, was in uh, film production. How did the I guess how did the entertainment law how did it evolve into that? So I I want to give you my whole uh, my whole origin story since awesome. it's <laughs> so when I was in the kindergarten. Uh, so five years old, I'm in the kindergarten at a school that was K through 12. This was back in Brookline, Massachusetts. And um, the high school kids were doing a production of Oliver. And um, um, the kindergarten kids were brought into uh, a rehearsal. And we sat down and the lights went down and the curtain went up and the stage lights came on. And I had tunnel vision. I was focused and intensely interested in that for the whole time. You don't see a five-year-old sit still for two hours straight very often. Yeah, uh, right. Mesmerized. And went home and, Mom, Dad, you got I want to see more plays and take me to see shows. And so they did. They were theater lovers themselves. Mm. And uh, um, so that was my introduction to the entertainment industry, basically. And I did that all through junior high school, high school, and, and actually worked professionally in theater starting around age 16. And uh, you have a great voice, I would think, for theater. I, it makes sense. <laughs> well, I was always behind the scenes. I was I was always a backstage sound really, light really, okay, stage crew. Yeah, uh, but as a sound guy, you sometimes have to talk into a microphone and make an announcement or those. Absolutely, kinds of yeah. The voice um, of God. <laughs> yeah. So, so off to college, I go to study theater, and it's a theater program mainly designed for the actors, um, right. performance intensive theater. You know, everybody had to work on the crew. But everybody was expected to be in the shows, and that just wasn't going to be my thing. I knew I didn't want to act. I didn't want to be on stage that way. Okay. So um, I shifted over to radio, television, and film. Right. Uh, at the school I was at, it was called Telecommunications and Film, and we had sort of a dual dual track program uh, with you know the production on one side and the policy management and, uh, uh, you know, social stuff on the other side. And I was doing great in both. And, uh, by the end of my junior year, I had sort of wrapped up the major and still had some other requirements to get done. So I started taking the graduate level courses in this, which was, you know, government regulation of the media and, um, media policy and management issues and stuff like that. And I did great in those classes. And And did they, did those speak to you, those subjects, or did you just happen to do well on them? Well, I did well in them probably because they spoke to me, or at least okay. they, they 
triggered something in me that made me stay interested in right. and, and yeah so um the professor of, of those classes actually pulled me aside one day and said hey if you haven't thought about law school you should wow and i laughed and thought that was the most ridiculous thing ever <laughs> i was applying to film schools right i was going to wow. go to graduate school trying to wow, get into wow. USC yeah yeah school. yeah yeah <laughs> uh, but anyway, so the LSAT was coming up. That's the admission test for lawyers. And I decided, okay, why not? I'll go take the LSAT. And I took Jeez. it and I did okay. And so I sent off a few applications to law school at the same time. And I got into law school. I didn't get into film school. Wow. Uh, <laughs> the universe spoke, my friend. Kind of, yeah. And so I decided not to do either. And I took the, uh, I took, I graduated and I came back here to LA where I grew up. Oh, and, oh wow. Okay. Started working in, in television production. I really yeah. wanted to be in the film business, not, okay. the, not the okay. TV side. But, right. you know, I was working in TV doing mostly live sports mm -hmm. coverage. I was a line producer. I had a truck and a crew, and we would go out oh, and yeah. do three events a, a week. And uh, I was pretty good at it. It was very stressful, intense, you know, kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and I re but I really wanted to be in the entertainment fe uh, feature side. Okay. And... Um, just as I was ready to make a move, the Writers Guild went on strike. Ah, uh, yes. And it was going to be happening in Hollywood for a while. So yeah. that's when I reapplied and went to law school. Wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Come to law school with a degree in, you know, a law degree with a background in entertainment like that. And let's face it, nobody's hiring you to do insurance law. Yes, <laughs> so. right, right. What does it mean for someone like yourself when you, when you describe the work that you do as an entertainment lawyer? The work of an entertainment lawyer, as I said, it isn't really that sexy. It is yeah. a lot of paperwork, yeah. a lot of contracts. I mean, the contracts I deal with are interesting subject matter, and people are getting together to make a movie or co-write a script or, yeah. or, or finance a play or something like that. And really what it comes down to is um, uh, who's going to own things and how are they going to share in the revenues and the profit. You know, nothing, nothing that extraordinary. Two businesses come together to, to make a joint venture. You get the same issues. Right. But it's copyright and copyright law is is different than most other kinds of property law yes and um and then we have you know the personal rights of people with their right of privacy and right of publicity and all the, the kinds of things that go into the making of a film that you don't think about when you're manufacturing widgets mm, 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 mm. so it's my job to you know sort of help the 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 people who are doing this kind of work understand the parameters and the boundaries and make sure they've got all their T's crossed and I's dotted. Tell us about your connection to the documentary community through your work. Well, look, you know, making a film is making a film. And in a lot of ways, um, uh, whether it's a narrative thing or, or a documentary style project, the many of the legal issues are the same. Obviously, yeah. the financing is different because the budget sizes are usually very different. Um, but ultimately, it's, you know, you're coming, you've got a group of people coming together to jointly create something in a collaborative way. Mm. Um, more, you generally more people involved in a feature than a documentary. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, over the course of my 25 and a half years of practice, uh, I have represented people on both sides of that, of that divide. The ah, interesting. Line. Um, so, you know, the documentary filmmakers come in and it's low budget and it's let's hurry up and do it fast. And, yeah. And, you know, they'll generally need to have sort of a um, a basic structure set up and some forms. And usually, I actually often as not, the documentary comes to me after the film is either finished or nearly finished, mm. and it's time for distribution. And the distributor is telling us, <laughs> telling, here are all the things you need to give us. Yes. And they realize, okay, I've got the film negative. <laughs> yes, else. right, right. 
paperwork in order. Um, and so sometimes it's, it's assembling things sort of after the fact. Uh, what I prefer to do, of course, is be brought in at the beginning, right. sometimes before anything but an idea is in place. And so we can get everything lined up so that that what we call the chain of title of ownership uh, is is very clear. So from the inception of the project, we have a clean line traceable through paperwork to show distributors, hey, nobody else owns any part of this and we've got all the rights and permissions we need and and yeah. uh, yeah, music and you know all the other stuff in there is cleared and we're good to go. Um, well, that's that's actually perfect for this particular episode, Gordon. I don't know if you know how the documentary life works, but generally the first half of it is a segment that's entirely um, run by myself. So yeah. a particular given topic that I talk about for the first half of the show. And it just so happens to be that in this particular show, a lot of what I'm talking about is what are the things that uh, that one can be doing in an organizational sense, in a production sense, in a visualization sense, what are the things that a, a, fil- a doc filmmaker can be doing before they actually start making their doc films? Because as you are alluding to, oftentimes we run into issues long yeah. after the fact, and then we're trying to play catch up because of that. So maybe what you can do, uh, we could uh, couch a bit of this conversation now around uh, your advice, what can doc filmmakers be doing in a legal sense before they're knee deep into their film? Yeah, well, I would say step one is don't be afraid to have a consultation with someone like myself, an mm. entertainment media lawyer who is sort of familiar with the issues and can run down this checklist. And we'll, we'll do a little bit of that now. I don't actually have my, my actual checklist right in front of me, but yeah. I'll put from memory. But, you know, you want to go down the checklist so that the you know, so that someone is asking you the right questions yeah. early enough that you'll kind of know what you need to be doing as you move through the process. I mean, most people know you probably need a release signed by anybody you interview for your show or anybody you film for your uh, for your project. Um, but there's so much more to it than that. And and having the legal ducks in a row is is really not that hard mm-hmm. as long as you have the materials and and the awareness that it needs to be done. So. You know, sort of step one in my view is is figure out who's the owner of this thing. You're a filmmaker. You think, okay, I'm the owner, but now you've got a bunch of people sort of coming in with other parts of the project. You know, maybe you don't own the camera. Maybe you do. You know, and, and someone else is running the camera. What about the, what about the sound guy? What about the, yeah. uh, you know, the, sometimes the, uh, the subject of the show. Let's say you're doing a, a. I had a client a few years ago who did a documentary about a very famous songwriter. Well, the songwriter thought that he was going to be the owner of the film oh boy right right sort of a biographical autobiographical thing and so we ended up having to work that out and it wasn't a big problem but it was something that nobody had thought of until after a lot of shooting had been done uh so a lot of it is also just sort of getting those things out in the open and having those conversations before there are misunderstandings that are costly Mm -hmm. um so having some kind of an entity structure whether it's a corporation or a limited liability company, or maybe it's just a, a collaboration agreement or some kind of a partnership between between the people putting the thing together, that clearly outlines who owns what and how they're going to divide things. And, and, and I'm going to interrupt you there real quick, Gordon, uh, because yeah. it, it rings a bell, and this is something that I myself have been faced with, and I know other, other, other doc filmmakers have. What are we doing when... We're filming a particular subject, and by subject, maybe we mean a a, a person's life or, sure. or 
you know, maybe we're filming an athlete, right? Mm -hmm. And we have a great story and we've done, you know, tens if not hundreds of hours of footage with this person through the course of a half a year. And then at some point, uh, you know, uh, ESPN gets wind of the story and suddenly they come in and they want to do a, a, you know, a documentary about this particular athlete. Not that we can necessarily stop them from doing that, but what can we as doc filmmakers do to protect ourselves when we come across a great subject and a great story um, so that somebody can't just come in and say, you know what, hey, we're ESPN, we're going to tell that story now. Yeah, there, there isn't that much you can do generally. And if you can get the subject, the person to sign a contract of exclusivity, mm. That's the object. That's what you want to do so that they're not going to cooperate with the ESPN, you know, for, for a period of time. That's right. To get your thing up. But that's a pretty hard, uh, uh, hard thing to get them to do. It is. So that next best thing you can do is just get them to agree and cooperate and, and promise not to interfere with your production. Um, yeah. And, and of course, to give you the rights uh, uh, to do your thing. And, you know, hopefully you if you've gotten fairly far down the path you can do it faster better than than the, the second <laughs> entrant. Yeah. Uh, not always possible and yeah, unless for sure ESPN is is not in the same business as a documentary filmmaker they yeah. they do documentary style work but it's generally for their channel and it's a, a fairly limited um exhibition schedule and things like that your a documentary film will probably have a longer hmm. life tale uh, so I wouldn't view it as competition so much as validation that there's interest. Well, and, 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 and you know, what we're up against, you mentioned that you could potentially get that subject to, to um, you know, draw up a contract with you yeah. and, and basically allow you the exclusive rights to their story. Sure. And then that's where you get into that sort of that weird sort of issue that can come up with, with the documentary filmmaker and then the subject because the subject then says, well, if you're going to have exclusive rights to my story, that's my story. So then I'm going to need a cut of that. And that becomes yep. that, as you know, that becomes that murky area because we as doc filmmakers, we, we as doc filmmakers are telling a story and we may not have a budget ourselves. And the right. fact that you pay someone even, however you may pay someone, regardless, you are affecting that story. You are affecting the documentary yep. process. And trying to get that subject to understand that is a very difficult task. That's true. I mean, I do think that there's nothing wrong with paying people for the services that they render, you know, to, you know, if, if an athlete has a day rate for giving media appearances, then why not pay them their day rate? Uh, if they ask for it, just like you would pay the sound person or the editor or the, the caterer right. to show up and do their job. Um, that said, you don't want to be essentially buying the access to the person. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and although, you know, let's face it, yep. in the narrative world, we, we pay people for their life rights all the time. Absolutely. And it's a slightly different business model. You, you're right. You don't want to corrupt the the storytelling. That's just uh, it, right. What is it, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, the mere act of yes. observing something changes it? Well, <laughs> that's right. paying someone to, for the permission to observe them is definitely going to change it. It's definitely affecting the story. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so that's the thing. But, but. Again, I you know I don't think that's necessarily anything wrong. I think it makes sense to sort of disclose the fact that they got yeah. paid, uh, you know, something. Um, certainly, in in the if there's a commercial element to things, then you have to disclose your commercial relationships. Yes, uh, that's something we talk about with podcasters in particular. So, and and likewise, I think if you're making a documentary and you receive um, some sponsorship, you know, you should say so. If you receive um, 
goods in exchange for you know exposure of you know the the product placement for example it right. should be pretty clear made clear somewhere that there was a promotional consideration being yeah. made like NPR uh, it, might do uh, you know underwritten by so and so well yeah and underwriting is actually a specific thing but you know let's True. say Red Bull delivers twenty cases of Red Bull to you yes. so captain crew can drink it as long as they drink it on screen as well yeah right <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, then then somewhere in the credits you should say you know promotional consideration from red bull you know <laughs> uh, just to make it clear that they that this was sort of a, a quid pro quo kind of a transaction right right an issue that we often come up against gordon as documentary filmmakers is this idea of of fair use and uh, and fair use and copyright law and, and it's something i'm sure that you're more than well acquainted with as an entertainment lawyer um yeah how often is that coming up for you with doc filmmakers uh always <laughs> <laughs> uh you know if, uh, so so for those who aren't that familiar let me Thank let me you. back up and give a very brief explanation so anytime you use content, you know, uh, original material that was created by somebody else, that somebody else owns that material. And um, if you use it without their permission, that essentially amounts to copyright infringement unless it qualifies as fair use. And fair use is this defense to copyright infringement claims that is uh, a product of um, it, it's now in the statute, in the Copyright Act since 1976, but it, it, this originated earlier under the 1909 Copyright Act. Judges had to sort of balance the the um, the rights protected by copyright and, and the restriction on copying is in fact a restriction on speech. And here in the U.S. we've got, you know, free speech under the First Amendment. So those two things are in inherent conflict. Uh, so yes. the judges came up with this approach called fair use that said, look, if you take certain amounts of certain kinds of material and use it in certain ways, then it will be considered free speech, fair use, not infringement. And then Congress sort of took that and, and codified the law, made it a part of the, of the actual text of the law. And so what we do is we look at four uh, independent factors when we have a, an alleged infringement. So yeah, let's say you've taken a little piece of music or, or footage of a, of a film or painting or something like that. We have to examine these four factors and, and it, it, we do this on, there's no rule of thumb. We have to do this analysis on each individual case on an ad hoc basis. So factor number one is the nature of the alleged infringing use, the purpose and character of that use. So if it's educational or or uh, newsy versus, you know, purely entertainment or, or very commercial, you know, uh, that's going to impact the analysis. The second factor we look at is the amount and substantiality of what's taken. And what's often um, a misconception is, well, we can use seven seconds of this, or we can use three bars of music or something like that. And there is right. no such rule of thumb. So there's no sort of hard, hard sort of rule of thumb. Okay. Because those three bars may be the most substantial portion of the of the song, Indeed, for right. example. I mean, if I do dun 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 dun, that's you know yeah. one two three four notes uh, <laughs> of a song, but you know the song immediately. Mm. And if it wasn't Beethoven from way way right. way back, it would be protected by copyright. Yes. So, so you you know the amount and substantiality is that factor. The third factor is the nature of the original work. If it's similar to the to the new one, it's more likely to be deemed an infringement than if it's very different. If they're sort of transforming into a new medium or new thing, uh, that that helps on the fair use analysis. And the fourth one is the impact on the market for the original. If there's a licensing uh, structure available, 
then the infringement may really look like just an, you know, the, it, this is just a way around the, the licensing. We should have paid for it. That's going to be a, in, against a fair use conclusion. So the judge or jury has to make a determination of all four of these factors and weigh and balance all four and find out, does it come out as fair use or does it still look like infringement? And um, so that's what fair use is. And it comes up with, more so with documentaries than with other because of the budget sizes and the, the availability of resources. But look, if you want to use a famous piece of music, you can expect that someone's going to complain about it yeah. unless you've gotten a license uh, or if you're only using a tiny little smidgen of it to illustrate an important point. You know, documentary film tends to do well on that first factor, the nature of the origin of the alleged infringing use, the purpose and character. Um, so you take a small amount and you do it in a transformative way. You're not selling records. You're not selling music videos. You're Correct. doing something, you know. Um, or how if it's incidental. So 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 you're filming in an area and there happens to be a piece of music that's in the background. But even that, don't don't be so sure. Mm -hmm. uh, because, it, you know, it, it can't, background music is still music in the, in the film. And if it's the yeah. whole song, it's, uh, you know, and it sort of plays a role in the film. Ah, uh, yeah. It's going to be different than if it's just we're doing an interview and we got this guy saying six words and it happens that the band uh, on stage in the back of the room was warming up playing, you know, My Sharona or You're whatever. Right. <laughs> I don't know why I chose that one. Because uh, it's a great tune. <laughs> uh, there you go. So, you know, that's why it has to be an analysis done on each little bit individually. And that is where if you have a film that has lots of that kind of stuff in it, you're going to end up having to have a lawyer give you that analysis and write the opinion letter on each item of possible. Yes. Um, so that you can get the insurance so you can get the distribution. Oh goodness. That's exactly something that we talked uh, at length about, you know, say a handful of less, a uh, handful of episodes ago, we had filmmaker John Manning on the show and he happened to do a documentary film that was about, um, about burlesque dancing that was happening yeah. in Portland, Oregon. And so you can imagine all of the incidental music that's happening all of the time, any sort right. of performance. Mm -hmm. And so he had to hire, hire someone to do the, the exact analysis that you're speaking of. And man, yeah. did it sound like a headache <laughs> for all people involved. And, and expensive, I suspect, in and terms was, of... Yes, yeah. absolutely. Tell me again the, the term that you used for um, the letter that you write, the, the letter that okays the use of it. It's a fair use opinion. opinion and I would fair use it, opinion. Say it okays it. Okay. Uh, the opinion it's your letter opinion, is, right? Is a reasoned opinion by a lawyer who's yep. looked at all of the issues. And that is something that the filmmaker would use to get the insurance company to say, okay, we trust and agree with that analysis and uh, therefore we give you insurance so that if somebody sues, we okay. can defend the case. So it's to get the insurance. It's not to get the distribution deal. It's actually to get the insurance that allows you, that helps you with the distribution deal. Right, and the distribution deal isn't likely to materialize if right. you can't. I shouldn't say provide. That. If this. someone will sign you a distribution deal, it'll be conditioned on your obtaining the ENO, the errors and omissions right. insurance policy. Okay, great, great. Thank you for clarifying that. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk a bit about contracts and other legal forms that uh, that okay. you're often, I'm sure, you know, are often a big part of, um, of probably your daily life and probably should be a part of our daily lives as documentary filmmakers. What are the most common ones that, that we should be thinking about? Uh, well, certainly the release the between anybody who's yeah. on camera uh, or, or interviewed. Uh, you want to have a, a document with every member of the crew that specifies that the work they do belongs to the film company or the filmmaker 
directly as a work made for hire. Okay, that is so absolutely not something that I knew of. That's that's yeah. wild. Okay, so the crew yeah. actually so needs to do that. Crew deal memo is okay. what I would call it. Yeah, I right. had to call it my crew deal memo. Yeah. Uh, I would say that's very important. Uh, obviously, licenses for any music that, that is being used in the piece yeah. um, and any other third-party content that's being used in the piece. I, I generally say, look, if you've got a... Um, uh, more than one or two people who are sort of at the helm of the project, you need to have some kind of a document or agreement between them. If not, mm-hmm. a, I, I like to say form a company because that also right. gives you the opportunity to, to raise money from outsiders and, you know, it gets more complex. But, um, uh, yeah, the, yeah, so that, yeah, some kind of a partnership agreement or an LLC or a corporation or something is pretty important. Um, Beyond that, what else? Well, uh, location you, releases. Yeah, of course, location releases. And, and before we get to that, one of the things that you talked about, you know, uh, you know, uh, releases from people on camera, releases yeah. from your crew. What's interesting to me is I have been told by a number of a number of people whose opinion I have greatly respected over the years, and to their knowledge, they said that if a person is interviewed on camera in a, in, in a, in a documentary, that in itself is consent that you actually don't necessarily have to have the paperwork. Is that true in any way, Gordon, or is that absolutely ridiculous? Uh, it's not ridiculous. Uh, I would say that in the absence of the paper document that specifies the exact nature of the inter- of the interview and what it can be used for and all those things, yeah. having them appearing on camera in front of the you know, in front of the camera, they see the lights, the camera, the microphone and so on. It, yes, it means they've consented to be interviewed. Okay. But unless they specifically tell you on camera in so many words, and you can use it for any purpose you like forever and ever throughout uh, the universe, all the extras, right? So of, because they could argue, well, yeah, I knew I was being interviewed, but I didn't know it was going to go on television. Oh, yeah. I didn't know you were going to use these for promotional web spots. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you want to have a document that very clearly states that. And by the way, the consent, you know, in the absence of a, do- of a document that says the consent is irrevocable, hmm. guess what? They can revoke that consent. They can oh, say, man. you know what? I don't think I like that anymore. <laughs> now, in now in in the, you know generally in the media, it, it's frowned upon. Nobody's going to do that. If you interview a celebrity, it's yes. going to reflect really badly on that celebrity if they later withdraw the consent, okay. because nobody's going to want to interview them in the future. Yeah, right? right, right. But for your average Joe who shows up and appears in in you know talking about his brother-in-law who you know jumped off a cliff and <laughs> whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, they may not care. Yeah, totally. You want to interview them ever, ever again. They'd right. rather just, they don't like the way you portrayed them or whatever, and so they, they get upset. So the written release is really, you know, the best evidence that they did consent to everything and anything. And that's why I prefer it. Even in the conversation that I've here had with you today, and I imagine yeah. my listeners, a, a lot of our gears are working overtime right now with the information that, that you have given us. And, and, and I'm sure to you, you're like, this is, trust me, this is like the tip of the iceberg. This is really basic. But what we have already learned in this episode is, I think, going to be, I know it's going to be incredible, incredibly valuable to a lot of us. You have legal forms and packs that you have actually put together. And, yes. and, and coincidentally enough, you've done it with our friend Faith Fuller and through her desktop documentaries. What are those legal forms and packets that can help make this all of this easy for us? Because I definitely would love access to some of this. 
Well, we have two packets. One is the uh, the sort of production, uh, pre-production and production forms. Yeah. That's the releases, the the uh, life rights agreement. You know, there's some that stuff in there that you would use sort of on the front end of things. And then we have another packet that's sort of on the on the back end, the the post-production stuff, the music licenses, yeah. the um, releases, clearing content and stuff like that. That you'd location so, releases, talent releases, crew releases. That's all yeah. in that 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 uh, legal form starter pack, right? In the starter pack, okay. exactly. And then the, and then the post-production pack has some of the stuff that you would think about a little later on in the game. Right. I I need to get to these, so <laughs> these are going to be super helpful for me. And I know that a number of my listeners are probably going to go today and, and grab these. What's the best way that we can do that? Okay, well, so I understand that you have an affiliate relationship and a ah, yes. promo code for your for your audience to use. And That's what's right. the promo code? Uh, the promo code that we've been using is is my doc life, and it's my doc life all in caps, and that includes a twenty five percent discount for my listeners. Okay, so so what I'd like to do is I'm going to create some kind of a bonus. I don't I haven't exactly got in my mind what that bonus will be. Okay. Some kind of an easy download that'll be a resource, a checklist, or maybe I'll do a fair use um, um, handy reference guide. That would be appropriate, yeah. And uh, and so if you go to firemark.com, that's my name, F-I-R-E-M-A-R-K, firemark.com slash documentary life. Uh, and and we'll, what we'll do is we'll let you sign up to get my bonus, and then we will also provide you with the links and the promo code to get the uh, the discount on the forms packs, all you know, sort of one-stop shopping. So, well, you have to follow some links, but, but right. uh, we'll get that all for you, and that way um, you can continue to hear from me, and you'll get the uh, the forms pack from uh, desktop documentaries. From That's desktop documentaries, exactly. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, I'd love to do that, and um, yeah. So the the link will be firemark.com/slash documentary life. Awesome. Can we make that firemark.com/slash the documentary life.com? Certainly. And the only reason I say that is just because it could be somewhat confusing because it is always referred to as the documentary life. So again, that link will be firemark.com slash the documentary life. And, and, uh, and what I'll do is I'll, of course, I'll also include that in the show notes for this episode. So anyone can um, either go to that URL or they can go to uh, the documentary life.com website and, uh, and just check it out from the show notes. I'll put a link there as well. Awesome. Gordon, this is a conversation that I have wanted to have for a long time, and, and I'm very thankful that uh, that I bumped into you, you know, a couple of weeks ago at Podcast Movement. Feeling is mutual. And uh, this is definitely a conversation that a lot of it's going to be hard for some from some documentary filmmakers to hear, including myself. Yeah. And but it's important. And these are these are the things that we can be doing, um, you know, hopefully before, well before. Um, an issue comes up. These are things that we can be doing preemptive to protect ourselves, yeah. you know, and mm -hmm. uh, speaking with someone like yourself, an entertainment lawyer like yourself um, is going to be very beneficial to all of us. Thank you so much for being on the show. I anticipate emails from this and uh, I anticipate further correspondence. Um, yeah. It'd be great to have you on again in, in the future. That would be my pleasure. And also, let me just say to your listeners, you yes. know, I do have a YouTube channel where I answer, you know, sort of, you know, the, the easy questions, the basic questions. Awesome. Tell uh, us about that. Not too specific. So firemark.tv is where I have my asked and answered uh, 
question and answer series that I uh, that I try to do almost every week. Okay. And if you have questions, go over there or go to firemark.com slash questions. Submit your question, and uh, I try to get an answer out to you as soon as I can. Another outstanding and valuable resource from our friend Gordon Firemark. Awesome, Gordon. Thank you so much, Matt, for being on the show. Chris, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. You well. Don't forget, if you're interested in a guide to help you navigate the fundamental aspects of doc filmmaking, the things that every doc filmmaker should know, then get our free doc filmmaking course, The Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist, by going to thedocumentarylife.com courses. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.